Chuck Yates, Needs the Job Podcast, Episode 7, Take 12. Chuck Yates is a self-proclaimed towering giant of the energy whoa, whoa, business. Whoa, 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 whoa. Listen, Chuck called me crying about getting cyberbullied on Twitter about this intro or something, so we got to change it up. Just scratch that one. Good morning, Mr. Yates. Thank you for joining me on this Skype interview, even if you're five minutes late. Um, I'm looking at your resume, and I see that you graduated from Rice. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, I'm more of a Baylor guy myself, but I won't hold that against you. Um, so under experience, all you have is in big, bold letters in crayon, silver heel dill. Um, can you explain? Well, I was fortunate enough to be part of the silver hill oh. deal where we sold two and a half billion dollars worth of assets to RSP oh. and we made the front page of the wall street journal. <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Thank you for your time. I, I think we're going to go in a different direction. Everybody. Welcome to the seventh episode of Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. And let me tell you guys, we're in for a treat tonight. So I have known Greg Kane for at least 12, 13 years. Met him back when I was at Kane Anderson. And Greg, I don't think I can uh, do your your bio justice. So, Greg, why don't you tell the uh, tell the audience uh, a little bit about what you've been doing in your life, who you are? Well, I come into the business in the uh, uh, early '80s as a landman, and I do uh, uh, a tour as as an independent uh, lease broker in New Orleans during the Tuscaloosa trend. And then I worked for Texaco and Texas International as a staff landman. And then I had a brokerage business up until 86. And then I took a, a break and went to New York and worked as an analyst for Cargill. And then we were fortunate uh, in the early 90s to land uh, uh, funding with a, a family office in, in Pennsylvania, the Hillman family. And we uh, directed their capital in in a number of plays and our basic philosophy was to sort of uh, monitor uh, other people's discoveries and when they had something significant to try to get up there and wedge our way in land wise and we had a fair amount of success at that uh with with the hillman group and then another a number of, of fortune 500 and uh family office investors and um we uh uh I left that group uh, uh, just about the time the shale plays started. And I was generally a skeptic on shale plays and was not a very um, big participant in those until um, basically 2014 when we heard about a very unusual and uh, discovery by EOG in the carbonates of East Texas and Madison County. And that's what our... Uh, talk is going to be about tonight and I'm going to try to convince everybody here um, in the audience that we've got a super giant field's been found by EOG and they're, the play is being held tight. They're not releasing much information. Matter of fact, they're just stone cold silent on the play. But they are, they are now in the process in coordination with a number of midstream companies, refineries, and LNG plants in building what I believe is the largest takeaway infrastructure for any oil field ever built in the world. And so that's the story I'm going to tell, and I'm going to try to document it and try to uh, make people understand that this somewhat loose talk coming out of uh, both the Obama and the Trump administrations about American ind energy independence which you really can't get there with Bakken Eagleford in even West Texas. 
But this play, I think, is going to is what they really are talking about, and that's why they're quiet about it. And I think it's going to demonstrate that the United States has achieved energy independence, and it's a discovery of massive size. So, so Greg, just just to be clear, kind of to make sure I understand, I mean, what you're saying is there is a field discovery slash whatever we want to call it, there, there's a discovery area out there that EOG is sitting on top of, and you're saying it's, I mean, what are you saying? It's as big as the Permian? Bigger than the Permian? What? We don't know, you, we don't know how do you, big you, it is. We don't know how big it is. It's very, very big. And um, we've been able to isolate <clears throat> in the midst of this major infrastructure boom which of course has been slowed down by COVID, um, we think that much of the infrastructure that's being built on the upper part of the Gulf Coast has no explanation, save that there is some discovery in East Texas. It's uh, uh, too far away from West Texas, and the volume metrics of the pipe system are staggering, as well as the tie-ins to the refineries and LNG plants. And so the case for the size of this field is going to be made on infrastructure simply because no information is being released about the play. And we think the play has reached a level where it has been deemed a matter of national security. And I'll explain that uh, when we discuss uh, actions that EOG took in 2012-13 to persuade the Department of Energy and the Department of Defense to lift the export ban. Because this field was so big, um, the feedstocks coming out of it would basically create a glut uh, on the Gulf Coast. So they found something that's so big, the largest petrochemical and refining complex in the world can't absorb it. Gotcha. Well, where do we, where do we start talking about this? How do we, how, how do you want to make the, the case for this? Because well, at I least think what I heard, go ahead. The case, I think the case makes itself we have to make the case on regulatory filings and infrastructure build out because they're not uh, flowing the test wells at the rates they can flow them at. And they haven't embarked on the infill drilling program to develop the field because of the problem that the volumetrics are so, so large that the infrastructure must be in place and export capability and processing capability has to be in place before they embark on the infill drilling program. And so what I wanted to do was take you through a very quick discussion of how they made the discovery and how they decided, discovered how big the field was. Um, explain, you know, the, the coring program that they then took to Washington that got the export ban lifted. And then a big infrastructure build out program it was commenced in, in the summer of 2018, and we're coming to the end of this, the first phase of that, and we're going to discuss the um, LNG takeaway capacity and crude oil takeaway capacity, uh, as well as above ground storage that has been, been built on the Gulf Coast to export this oil uh, at various uh, very large crude carrier installations that are planned. And then we're very briefly going to talk about the LNG component. Uh, but basically, the, uh, the story that we're going to tell you is the discovery uh, is, is so large that the entire petrochemical and refining complex of the Gulf Coast can't absorb it. The standard distribution system is too small. And so very large and very numerous sets of pipeline, all 30, 42, and 48 inch, which is normally a very, it's very rare in the United States. We see lines of those sizes except in transmission. But here we're going to see 30 inch line used for gathering and 42s and 48s for transmission. And the volume metrics uh, are, I think, are, at least on our calculations, are stunning. Well, why don't we, why don't we jump into it? So what's, what's the play? What is, what is uh what has EOG done? You said you were gonna give us give us a little preview of, of how they found this and 
the early days of, of VOG. How does that go? They wrote a position paper, which was on their website. Regrettably, I didn't take it down before they did. Um, roughly vintage 2010-11, where they said that they had looked at most of the shales in the United States, uh, and they felt that they had the best ones in Bakken and Eagleford. And, and, um, and, of course, West Texas isn't a shale, but it is an unconventional reservoir. And they had decided to shift their exploratory focus to, to limestones. And then in 2012, they drilled a test well called the Vic in southeastern Madison County, which, um, and we're going to reiterate this again and again, very mature region, lots of test wells into the Buddha, nothing particularly exciting. I'd say it's a fairly mature, not, not very exciting area. And they suddenly started showing extraordinary high P IIPs on their tests. And then they did additional um, drilling into the other carbonate members of that section, uh, particularly uh, uh, the Georgetown, and started getting comparable results. And we, we then think that they expanded um, the drilling program away from the initial discovery called the VIC and drilled a series of six outpost wells anywhere from 7 to 32 miles from the original test at various points of the compass, did extensive coring, and I think they satisfied themselves at that point in time they had made a discovery which we would classify as a supergiant, uh, well in excess of 10 or 20 billion barrel equivalent. And we really don't have a handle on how big it is because the infrastructure is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so in any event, uh, we know that they took the, the data um, to Enterprise, Kinder Morgan, um, uh, ETS, to motivate the drilling of an initial takeaway system. They had planned a, uh, they also took it to Washington, and, and that's why the export ban was lifted in 2015. And they uh, then um, um, were planning a drilling program, but because of the low price drops, they elected to defer it and um, pretty much uh, mothballed their drilling effort and started putting together an infrastructure team in early 2016. And then the infrastructure plan was completed and implemented around 2018. In the interim, they had obviously um, talked to Exxon and Sempra and had worked out arrangements to have the largest refineries and the largest LNG plants standing by uh, to take the product from the field. And then in this infrastructure program that appears in 2018, they start laying a gathering system, a 30-inch hey, pipeline. Hey, hey, Greg, let me ask one question just back. Does EOG have that much acreage? Is that something we can go to the courthouse and figure out do they actually they, own a bunch of acreage in there? How do we know that stuff? They, 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 their position at its peak reached about seven to eight hundred thousand acres. They did twenty-four takeouts of just about all the independent operators in the area, and then when the oil prices dropped and they just, and they after they completed the initial takeaway infrastructure, we think they elected to defer drilling, and. They let some of the acreage drop, and a fair amount of it has dropped. They're going to have to re, uh, have a second land effort to release it. But during that interval, they they commenced the construction of all this infrastructure. So the infrastructure seems to be the driving um, thought, and in in their overall exploration plans, and the area. And I can just ask you, Chuck. I don't think. Uh, in your community, no one is discussing, a, you know, a major discovery by EOG. One of the kind of significance I'm saying has occurred. Um, I think they they have been successfully uh, successful in masking the size of the discovery, and are anticipating renewing their acreage or taking new leases uh, as soon as this infrastructure um, program is in place. And we're very closely approaching yeah. that date when it will be. Yeah, no, because that's really interesting. We at Kane Anderson, we had Treadstone 
kind of in and amongst that. And we had a really successful sale of that asset. We were actually drilling verticals and commingling the Buddha and the Georgetown and, uh, and the like. You know, the thought was, though, if we had owned that asset longer, do you go horizontal in it? And as most folks know, Treadstone's one of the most successful successful deals Kane had ever been involved in. And so, yeah, we, we had a really good experience in there. And you're right, there were some big wells drilled early on, but the play did seem to go quiet. And I was never really sure why. I, I, uh, we believe, um, I had conversations with Treadstone and numerous other independent operators, and we had discussed the kind of flow rates that we were hearing for very limited periods. Uh, basically, when EOG tested the wells, they would flow them at a very high rate, um, and then they would uh, shut the wells in, um, and then at a later time, take a test, I guess, uh, we think with fairly restricted chokes or not the full section open, and report a rather unimpressive test on their horizontal wells. But when they got in front of the Railroad Commission in 2015 to get the, to get the allowable increase, which is the, so the first real uh, important step for them was to get the door open to exporting the feedstocks because the field was so big based on core. They succeeded in that. And then in, in 2015 and 16, um, after they elected not to uh, pursue a major drilling effort with, they had 20 or 30 rigs lined up at the end of 2014, but they didn't proceed with that. They did selective tests around the Vic well. They encountered another 3,000 barrel a day zone in the Georgetown at a test called the Turner and then confirmed that at an offset called the Gibson. And then they went in front of the Railroad Commission and applied for the highest allowable that has ever been granted by the Railroad Commission, 6,400 barrels a day for an 80-acre union with a dual lateral, um, primarily targeting the Buddha in Georgetown, but also possibly Buddha, Buddha Goodland Lime and Buddha Glen Rose combinations. And... Um, we have the content of that hearing, and uh, when the commissioners pressed the uh, engineers who were making the presentation on behalf of EOG, why do you need such a large allowable? It seems so high, completely disproportionate, and the engineers were quite adamant that that's the economic rate at which we can produce these wells, and that's the rate we want. And they, uh, they got it approved uh, in December with some slight um, of 2015 with some slight alterations in the acreage size. Um, they had to put additional acreage in the units to get the full 6,400. And after completing those wells, they approached the last remaining major independent holdout, uh, which is Burke Royalty, and offered them, we're told, $2.6 billion uh, for their position. And at this point in time, we don't know if that transaction has occurred or not, but we believe there is some sort of either formal or um, uh, off-record letter agreement between them, um, which gives you some indication of the valuation that EOG puts on the play area. Gotcha. So, okay, so we've had good test wells. We've got EOG in the area with acreage. Uh, they go to the commission. They ask for big allowables. Play Thanks. goes quiet. Yeah, biggest ever. Fair enough. Uh, biggest ever. And uh, then the play goes quiet. What's kind of the next piece of the puzzle that's got you excited? Well, then the, the, the second round of infrastructure, which completely dwarfs anything we've seen in any of the basins, you know, it's, it's much bigger than anything the Bakken or Eagleford of West Texas has ever seen. Um, they are. Uh, they began laying line with Targa um, in um, 2018. Contractor was Troy Industries, and uh, Troy uh, stayed in the area. Um, they laid an initial 30-inch line down to Mount Bellevue, um, accompanying an ETS line laid in 2015, which puts approximately 1.6 million barrels of NGL into Mount Bellevue out of the field a day. And then um, Targa's contractor continued building 
many, many 30-inch lines where which the Railroad Commission maps do not show, and they have not been added to the Railroad Commission maps to this date, which is almost two years later, and we don't have the op operator who has actually laying these lines identified. And then subsequent to that, we saw an intense effort by One Oak, ETS, Plains Resources, and Target to put multiple NGL lines through the play area and then consolidating them on a single right-of-way going into Mount Bellevue. So we believe that just on the, on the N NGL number alone, that we have two, two tar a target line in and another target line planned, two One Oak lines in, an ETS line in and a second one planned, planes line laid. Uh, we have a unknown operator with a 30-inch line at Eastgate very close to the same right-of-way that on 146 that goes down into Mount Bellevue. And then we have um, a very big 42-inch line coming from West Texas that runs like it's gathering in a strike direction across the entirety of the field from Brazos County all the way to Houston County, um, which can move a million six that's being permitted right now. And then One Oak has a plan for four more lines in Houston County. So we're talking about 12 or 13 LNG lines uh, for gathering, and then about eight or nine for transmission um, heading into Mount Bellevue. Now, in addition to that, um, during the same time period, there have been about 10 large ethane crackers uh, built um, south of the field. Um, and uh, also in Corpus Christi. And they represent, and this is construction's been done by um, Exxon, SABIC, which is, which of course is, is uh, Saudi Aramco, outside Corpus. Another one is going in Port Comfort. We've got, got one going into Dow Freeport. We've got um, a, a big one that has already gone into uh, Phillips Chevron at Cedar Lake. Uh, east of Houston. We've got uh, one going into Exxon Beaumont Refinery, one going into Exxon Baytown Refinery, and uh, two more at uh, Sosa and Westlake Chemical in Lake Charles. And finally, the last, the tenth one, is being built again by Formosa at a big $48 billion um, facility that they're building on the Mississippi River. Um, uh, in the vicinity of Donaldsonville. Now this adds about another million barrels a day of, of NGL demand. And there's just no way to explain all these pipelines and all this, these ethane crackers um, without, there's no accounting for it based on what's going on with NGLs coming out of West Texas or Scoopstack. The volumes are just completely inadequate to justify you know, and this enormous gathering and transmission system coming through the Madisonville, Huntsville area, and uh, no explanation of how, um, why the plastics industry is constructed over a million barrels of demand. And we believe that this is, is the first strong indicator that we have a supergiant discovery in this EOG found in Madison County. Now, Greg, is there any chance that all of this infrastructure build could basically what you're you're describing to make sure I I understand is it is you know could this have been built in anticipation of the scoop stack being the biggest thing on the planet and ultimately it just didn't work out I mean the that that behaved like no other resource play we've ever well, seen. Well, no, because uh, let's uh, we uh, you know I think verdict on scoop stack is fairly fairly negative now, but this one oak activity and if anybody knows what's going on in o Oklahoma, it should be one oak. They laid a uh, th their first thirty inch line um, in mid two thousand nineteen. They have a second one on the ground uh, right now on the, uh, coming through the same area. Both are 30 inch, so that's that's a million six of NGL moving a day, and their Arbuckle two uh, program calls for four more lines that are going to be laid across Houston County, which is uh, the eastern 
perspective section of the play based on the outpost program the EOG drilled. So there is no way that he, uh, One Oak would be doubling down. There's no way that um, uh, uh, Targa would, and ETS would be laying these second lines uh, if there was any kind of major disappointment. And, uh, and you've got, the other thing you've got to realize is that West Texas Phillips alone already has over 2 million barrels of NGL capacity um, in separate pipelines that come um, into Mount Bellevue from the west and don't go through the boot area in place. So there's just there's, there's a fair amount of capacity for West Texas and um, ScoopStack, NGLs. There's no necessity to add 7, 8 million barrels of additional transportation capacity topped off by a million barrels of uh, ethane cracker demand immediately south of the field of the field we think. Well, and Greg, and Greg, I'm not a midstream guy, so uh, hopefully some of uh, the listeners will tweet in or DM me and, and let me know, but, you know, it's my understanding that if this is scoop stack stuff and you've already got an existing pipeline there, you just use the same right away and you just, in effect, loop it, if you will, you know, lay a pipe right next to the other pipe Sounds like what you're describing is potentially a fanning out, if you will, of, of pipes coming through there. Am I getting well, that good right? catch. In other words, the pipelines, the the all these pipelines uh, are on that are coming south from uh, Midcontinent and and east from West Texas are first off they are telescoping pipelines. They are 17 and and 20 inch lines, 24 inch lines when they leave. Midland or um, Oklahoma, and when they approach the Buddha field, they're all on common right away. But when they hit the Buddha field, they splay, and they're spaced five, eight miles apart. So they're clearly doing gathering as they come through. A, in other words, they're getting a second dip into this Buddha field, um, and there are 30-inch lines at that point. So they've been they've been substan their volumetric have been essentially doubled and then they're consolidating again on when they hit Cleveland and they're going down the common right away to 146 uh, into Mount Bellevue once they finish gathering so we not only have way too much pipe and way too much capacity we have this second tip off that the lines are being spread out to gather rather if they were simply transmission lines they would they would come down a single right away consolidated as you're, as you're pointing out, but they're not. When they leave uh, Freestone County, just above the field, they're spaced eight, 14 miles apart. And this uh, Arbuckle 2 system going into uh, Houston County, uh, which, which uh, One Oak has announced and published, uh, that has, we can't explain that by anything except major discovery uh, in the eastern portion of the play area that the outpost program, the BOG drill, defined. Interesting. So we've got so so we've got pipe being put in pipe post disappointment of stack scoop. We and continuing have a, and, and continuing exactly. So it's coming in. It's spreading out across what you think is the potential play area. And then it's gathering back together at call it Cleveland, and then running into uh, to Mount Bellevue. Um, talk to me about the infrastructure going from there into refineries at all, kind of along the Gulf Coast. Okay, so uh, basically, what we're going to say is that um, when you add it all up, there's almost 10 million barrels a day of new pipe and new um, ethane cracker capacity in striking distance of the Buddha field. And that is an, that's, that's basically 130 or 140 times uh, percent of the NGL uh, generated by the present United States. So the number is just completely incredible and incredibly lopsided. And there's no explanation for it based on West Texas NGL production or scoop stack, Oklahoma NGL production. 
and um, and it's clearly gathering coming through Buddha. So we're gonna we're gonna say that if you take the high end number, at least seven eight million barrels a day of NGL is originating, and they're counting on Buddha to fill all these pipelines and to run all these ethane crackers. And even if you take a very conservative approach and discount and discount the fact that they probably are running the lines at low pressure, not that full. And the fact that the lines coming out of West Texas and uh, ScoopStack are telescoping, they're not 30 inch, they're 17s and 24s. We still got at least four or five um, million barrels of NGL a day that there's no accounting for and cannot possibly be explained by West Texas or ScoopStack. And either way, if you, uh, the oil ratio is about two to two and a half to one on NGL production. So even most conservative case, you're, you've got to be looking at eight, nine million barrels of oil a day and 50, 60 bees a day. Now, let's hey, move Greg, on to the just, 48. Well, just real, just real quick, Greg. I mean, you've actually seen this pipe, right? I mean, this is not you're reading a press release somewhere and maybe well, it's not built. Maybe it doesn't. I mean, tell people how we know this stuff is actually in the ground or going in the ground. Well, lost art. It's called scouting and talking to the contractors. And we've been doing it for seven years. We have over 55,000 photographs of the pipeline system and then the infrastructure on the coast. And we're convinced after looking at that and talking to all these people that this discovery is huge. We've talked to the people building the compressors and transporting them, and they're very tight-lipped about it. But they, there's over six or 700 compressors and pumps that have been built for this system in warehouses or deployed already. And um, we also know that there are massive amounts of skids uh, in the approaches to Beaumont and the approaches to Lake Charles. We haven't yet seen too much going down to Corpus, but there are skid dumps all along I-10, all along 146, all along 105. There's at least six companies that have skid yards in Cleveland, Hankamer, Winnie East, Winnie West, two in downtown Beaumont, uh, one over in uh, Starks, and those are to take the pipe into the refining complexes and into the LNG complexes. So this would be an appropriate point to shift off the NGL story to the next commodity or feedstock, and that's oil. Um, do you want me to go on to that now? Sure. Okay, now on the oil story, um, in in late 2018, we heard that they were going to run two 30-inch lines from the Vic Discovery and this uh, Burke area into Cleveland, and they were going to connect to a 48-inch line that was going to run directly into the Exxon refinery in, in Beaumont. Now, we confirmed a pump station um, on the approach to Beaumont that looks like it's been built for that 48. We think they're building laying some of the 48 just north of 105, um, five to six miles uh, out of Beaumont headed towards Cleveland. We have not been able to find the pipe near Cleveland. We've got 48 inch pipe inside the Exxon refinery. And then we found something really remarkable. Uh, they have run two sets of 24s. They laid some of it in late 18 and a second set in early 19 that connect the um, Exxon 48 with storage at Sun and storage at Phillips um, in Port Acres. And then that pipeline, dead, those two pipelines dead end into Total, where incidentally they're also building another big ethane cracker. And then a second set of double 24s have been laid through the Enterprise 25, 30 million barrel storage facilities in central uh, Beaumont. Um, and they're terminating, they pass Colonial, and then they terminate inside the refineries at um, Mo Motiva and also Valero 
in western uh, Lake Arthur. So they have basically given Buda crude, and those line, this uh, 48-inch line will move 2 million barrels a day, um, a direct, dedicated tollway into the largest refining complex in the world. And, and then every single refinery and every single storage facility in that refining complex is connected to the 48. And so obviously that they're going to be using that crew to, to run the refineries. And at the same time, uh, large figure eight rail facilities have been built at Jefferson Energy, which is a fortress investment uh, export position across from the Exxon refinery. Same figure eight has been put into the Phillips and Sun facilities and another uh, figure eight rail rack facility has been put into Enterprise. And we can tell you that this, all those facilities are a single rail shot on Union Pacific right away to a massive uh, hump station in Hearn, Texas, which is the largest single expenditure in the history of Union Pacific resources. And, it, and we have four of our 30 inch lines that do not have an identified pipeline company laying them, the ones that Troy laid through Grimes and Brazos County, teeing into a big interchange in Robertson County, the 30 inch line going down to um, a set of storage tanks next to uh, this uh, 1800 acre pump station, which we have monitored and is primarily handling strictly oil tank cars and ethylene pellet cars. We don't see uh, some livestock cars. We don't see auto transport. Uh, we don't see timber. Uh, we don't see normal box cars. We think it's a, a basically um, a facility where EOG has decided to move most of its crude oil by rail. And so there's, at this point, there's 3.36 million barrels of pipeline capacity keying into this interchange in Robertson County. And we think that that's gonna be flowing um, uh, by rail, in addition to the 48 uh, going out of um, Cleveland. So how big is the crude component? Um, you know, again, our estimates, the low side at 4 million barrels of NGL, it's extremely conservative, more like eight. Um, let's just double it. So we think we can get 8 million conservatively and as much as 16 million barrels a day uh, moving both by pipeline and by rail. And then they've, they basically have uh, cookie cuttered this whole concept of stringing together all the oil and LNG complexes. So there's a second 48 that we have spotted near the Baytown refinery. It is, uh, proposed, is proposed to run through Lake Charles connecting to Sitco and Phillips. And then just three weeks ago, we talked to people who were laying skids just south of Exxon's Baton Rouge refinery. And it appears that they're going to lay a distribution line similar to the dual 24s that they have in Beaumont to every refinery in the New Orleans, um, um, South Louisiana, Mississippi River refinery complex. So that would be Exxon, Baton Rouge, uh, Motiva Covenant, um, uh, uh, Mar Marathon, Garyville, Shell Norco. Uh, then we have Valero Mew, Valero St. Charles, and finally Phillips Alliance. So I think that's seven refineries. And so Baton Rouge down to Phillips Alliance is, is a complex that's going to be fed by the 48. Baton Rouge, uh, pardon me, Beaumont Port Arthur is a complex that's going to be for, fed by the 48 and then distributed by the 24s. Plus this massive rail connection from the pump station is we find is present in Beaumont Port Arthur. And this was all built post-core 2000, almost all this construction of the rail stuff occurred right after the, um, the cores were taken to Washington. That would be 2014-15. And so we believe that they're going to be moving oil by 48 to the refineries on the Mississippi River, oil by the 48 uh, to the uh, 
refineries in Beaumont, Port Arthur. And then the rail supported crude is going to be tied to ETS is planning a, a um, VLCC facility um, in, in, in the, it's immediately next to the uh, Phillips and, and Sons storage. And then there's a similar set of tanks. Uh, Enterprises bought oil tanking um, after they uh, started working on the um, storage and pipelines for the Buddha field. They bought oil tanking's entire position on the Houston Ship Channel. They put tanks in there that were explicitly um, going to be used by a pipeline that's now been replaced by this rail system uh, at the ship channel. And they have now, Kinder Morgan has now built a great big rail rack facility right next to that. So we believe they're going to be moving Buda crude to those enterprise tanks on vacant land that they developed after they bought out oil tanking uh, from the Union Pacific Mumford Hump Station. Now, Greg, so, I'm not a... Greg, I'm not a refining guy, but one of the things you always hear is crude quality matters. Do we know that the refiners or refineries we're talking about would be able to use the Buddha crude in terms of crude quality? They are. They are primarily configured to crack heavier crudes. However, vacuum distillation and, and atmospheric distillation are much cheaper, and you can and you have light, uh, clean crude like West Texas Intermediate and Buddha crude is amber and green. The samples I've seen is very high gravity. Um, now that um, doesn't give you the middle distillates that are necessary for diesel, uh, but it looks like now we've saw, seen what we believe are atmospheric crackers uh, going into the big build out. You know, Exxon is basically doubling the capacity of Beaumont, and we've seen uh, what appear to be uh, atmospheric and um, uh, volume um, atmospheric distillation towers going into that refinery. We know that atmospheric distillation towers are probably going into Shell Norco and uh, Valero St. Charles, and the uh, Marathon refinery at Garyville is also involved in a major build-out, and we're betting that those are, like I said, atmos atmospheric distillation and all designed to process light crudes, a lot of which are going to be originating from Buddha. Gotcha. So kind of, kind of where we are now is we, we saw some good wells drilled, test well, saw EOG, drill uh, other wells, you know, seven miles, 10 miles, 32 miles in different directions. Obviously did a lot of coring. They put together at one point something that was 800,000 acres um, together. We now, we then see kind of a massive infrastructure build in terms of just capacity and it's just strange if it were if it were coming from west texas and it was just doubling up capacity you'd, you'd see pipes running along existing right away same is true if it was coming from the stack and the scoop it seems to fan out over the play area the build on this continues today. You've got pictures, you've seen it, you've talked to the contractors, you, you see all that uh, post the disappointing results of the, the stack and scoop. You've got kind of from this fanning out, if you will, across the play, gathering back together, you then see pipe running, pipe and railroad running into the refining complexes across the, the Gulf Coast. Um, you know, any other kind of uh, evidence out there? Any, in, you've said the government potentially is in on this. What have you? Yes, uh, now when we, yeah, well, we, uh, we, have been, we have been photographing pumps and compressors and following trucks uh, that are carrying that equipment. And um, the drivers have instructions that when they approach the destination, that they're, if they think they're being surveilled, they're not to, to move. They just pull over and stop. 
So we've been totally frustrated and basically following the um, pressers and pumps uh, that are supporting this system. And we really have very, we have not been successful in, enjoy, in identifying compressor stations, but just in our conversations with the drivers, we have on a couple of occasions, people say to us, we cannot speak to you because this is a matter of national security. And we've also had people saying, I really can't speak to you because I've signed NDAs. I'm not supposed to discuss this. And then we've also encountered people who are, who are very hostile. Um, you know, that they, they think that, uh, us following them and taking photographs of loads is um, it makes them angry and uh, we've never encountered this sort of uh, um, behavior uh, from people uh, in other oil and gas infrastructure projects or even or around wells and uh, so we're we're firmly convinced that this event has reached the level that it is a matter of national security uh, EOG hasn't reported uh, since in 2015 at a major Bernstein conference. Um, uh, this uh, Bill Thomas was asked about what was going on in Buddha and he refused to discuss it. And the subject has not been discussed in any forum that I know about or included in any reports or press releases. All the, the takeouts that EOG did the 24 takeouts, there's never been any publicity on those. So we think that there is some degree of national security um, involved here, and that is why EOG has been relieved of the reporting requirements on the play, which would be normal disclosure, whether they were, because either way, if the investment had failed, and off record they've said that, and they've, off record they say, well, all that infrastructure has been planned for years, and it's for scoop stack. Well, that's just clearly not correct now. It's way too big and, and ScoopStack just doesn't have the volumes to justify any of this stuff. So we think it is a matter of national security and we think that it it's because it's so, so big. Now, the there, there are additional 48s planned to the Sabine Pass, Cameron, and Lake Charles LNG plants. And we're also hearing about another 48 going to past Galveston next decade and Dow Chemical at Freeport and finally terminating at Chenier in Corpus Christi. And then the last thing is the VLCC construction for the export of the crude and the accompanying storage. So we, we probably should move on to that. Yeah, go ahead. Well, the storage numbers are absolutely astronomical. Okay. Um, now we have counted with the conversion uh, of the facilities in, the, in Port Arthur and Beaumont to rail crude being brought in by rail rather than unloaded by tanker. We're looking at about 100 million barrels of storage being switched from holding tanker-borne crude to holding what we believe is rail-borne crude coming from Buda. We haven't seen any kind of any kind of rail traffic or or been told about any kind of rail traffic coming from West Texas to crude. We think most of the West Texas crude is moving by pipeline, and we pretty well think Corpus Christi is uh, the principal export point for West Texas crude. doesn't make sense to bring West Texas crude or gas any further east because the transportation differential just kills your profit margin. So we're looking at what's going in north of Corpus, and north of Corpus and immediately south of the uh, Mumford Hump Station, which is the biggest single expenditure of Union Pacific in its history and one of the largest hump stations in the world. Uh, that, that hump station is a, is a straight shot to the deep water port at Freeport. Now, in, in December of 2019, Standard & Poor's wrote uh, a report about the VLCC facility that uh, oil tanking and Enterprise are planning to build at Freeport. And we've been waiting for this. And in that article, they said that, the, that ultimately, if the first facility worked out, it was possible that, uh, which is a 2 million barrel marine boy export facility, that another 4 million barrels of export capacity would be added. And then the journalist says, and this facility will have access to over 300 million barrels of storage. Well, the key question to, to us was, well, does that mean that oil storage in Beaumont and oil storage in the Houston Ship Channel is going to be pumping oil down to Freeport to load these tankers? And the answer is, to some degree, yes, 
Uh, they have a pipeline called Sea Breeze. It's going to move a million barrels to that area. But um, about two months ago, we talked to some people who were involved in the VLCC construction in Freeport, and they told us, no, what, there's going to be a 2,000-acre, 250,000-barrel tank farm somewhere in the immediate vicinity of Freeport uh, and another 8,000-acre tract of 250,000-barrel tanks. Now, when you do the spacing on 250,000-barrel tanks uh, for fire reasons and, and tank failure reasons, um, you can fit about 100, 250,000, or 25 million barrels of storage on every 640 acres. So, uh, pardon me, 570 acres. So when you add this all up, there's room to build about 470 or 80 million barrels of above ground storage in Freeport. And we talked to people who are working on the VLCC projects and working with the port, and they are going to build 300 million barrels of storage on those two tracks, the remaining acreage that um, is gonna be used for pump stations and power plants and parking lots, et cetera. But we're going to have 300 million barrels of storage directly south of the uh, Montfort's uh, pump station. And we expect to see 20, 30, 50 trains a day heading there and then heading to the ship channel and to Beaumont to all these facilities that have been uh, storage facilities that have had rail uh, and rack facilities added. Now, when you add that up, that's we think that's about 400 million barrels of dedicated storage connected by rail to the hump station. And that's basically about 13%. Um, now, you have, an, have to introduce another number. When you're talking about storage, you have to talk about how often does your storage turn over. Now, for crude, uh, turnover is generally a 12 to 24x a year so that you empty and fill a single tank once or twice a month. For light products, it's more like 24 to 36 uh, turnovers a year. So we took the lowest turnover number, which is 12. And if you apply that to the storage that is in Beaumont and in Houston, and this big 300 million barrels that's being added to Freeport, we think that the Gulf Coast has 400 million barrels of storage, and that will turn over once a month, meaning that basically about um, – one, about 12 to 13 um, billion barrels of oil a year will move through those two facilities, and that works out to about 10 million barrels a day of export capacity. So we think that there's no way you can explain. We've already got the 48s. We've already got an enormous amount of uh, pipe capacity, which is already not full, and and they're being and cutbacks are being made on crude coming from West Texas to have 400 million barrels of above ground storage in the north eastern part of the Gulf Coast, not south in Brownsville and in Corpus, which is proximate to West Texas. We say, we say way too big, not geographically. Uh, located, doesn't understand basis risk. I mean, there's just too much basis differential transportation cost to move the crude that far east. We think that's Buda crude, and if that's Buda crude, we're going to credit that with about 8 uh, to maybe 14 million barrels a day of oil moving through the, the storage system. Then you've got the 4 million barrels in the 248s going to the Beaumont Port Arthur complex and the Mississippi River Baton Rouge New Orleans complex. And so we think high side crude could be 16, 18 million barrels a day. If you get very conservative, 12. Um, but um, more and more we're opting for the bigger numbers. The storage numbers are staggering. Um, just to put it in perspective, the largest storage in the world is Cushing. That's not a single storage facility. It's every storage facility in and around the town. Uh, the Mideast, Rastanur, uh, Gawar, two estimates, 39 million barrels of above ground storage and another of 65. Either way, if we got 400 million barrels of above ground storage dedicated to Buddha and connected by rail in Beaumont, Port Arthur, 
Houston and Freeport, we're definitely looking at, at a field that has got to be based on storage um, five times bigger than the 65 million barrel storage in Rastanur, Gawar. I just don't see anything that explains this infrastructure. Now, geologists uh, who've looked at this say it's a mature area. We haven't seen any well do more than 16 and 1700 barrels a day. There's no way it could generate the kind of oil you're talking about. This is all malinvestment. Now I ask you, it's still going on. Um, you're, you're not a midstream investor. Do you think these refineries, LNG plants, I mean, uh, Global Venture just put in, just started building their LNG plant in Lake Charles. They've got to have a lot of gas for that. Um, um, uh, and then uh, Sempra, Port Arthur, which is a joint investment between uh, Southern California Gas and the Saudi government, that's going in. These people have to have huge volumes of associated gas and oil to justify these LNG buildouts uh, and refinery upgrades and BLCC facilities. And even if West Texas gets to 20 uh, BCF a day, it can't explain the it can't explain the NGL complex. It, the oil's already got a home in Corpus Christi. Why is all this infrastructure so far from the largest shale field in the United States, West Texas? It's so far from it because it's not drawing from it. It's drawing from Buddha. So just to knock everybody's socks off here, the allowable of 6,400 barrels a day, every six months, a single location would, uh, pardon me, every six months, a single location is gonna generate a million barrels of oil and five BCS on 80 acre spacing. Now, would wells of that caliber explain 14 or 16 LNG plants? I mean, 90% of LNG capacity in the United States on 150 miles of coastline in, Northeast Texas and Lake and Southeast Louisiana, it would. But Scoop Stack and West Texas don't explain it. And four, 400 million barrels of storage and export capacity in, in uh, Beaumont, Port Arthur, Houston, and Freeport. West Texas does not explain it. There's not sufficient volume. It's geographically undesirable. It's way too far away. And it's not, and West Texas is not showing any evidence of installing major rail facilities and storage facilities that would, could supply these coastal facilities that we think Buddha is, gonna, is responsible for. Any questions? Greg, this is, I was about to say, Greg, you kind of answered mine, mine a, along the way. This is, uh, it's, it's wild to me that in this day and age, we could keep something like this quiet, you know, given the, the, the rampant media, et cetera. But like I said, I'm not a midstream investor. I don't know a lot of re about refining, but I mean, you're right. Why are people continuing to build all of this stuff unless they think something's coming? The construction over in Lake Charles for the LNG plants has been slowed down by COVID. But in our most recent conversations with the skid and the skid and skid manufacturers, is this Exxon uh, pipeline that's going to go down the Mississippi River is a rush project. They've got they've got skids heading over there right now. So I think that the configuration is going to be, you know, um, Buddha oil for everything in South Louisiana for refining, boot oil for the Beaumont Port Arthur complex, which is the largest in the world. Those refineries are quite big. And then the 400 million barrels of storage is clearly, we think is clearly for boot oil. I mean, they're not building the storage in Beaumont and in Brownsville or uh, Corpus Christi. They're building it in Freeport. It's just too far away. And it's, it's a, it's a very quick rail hop uh, from the hump station um, in the northeast corner of the Buddha field where the 430 inch lines terminate. And so the last thing I wanted to say to you is I kept 
trying to get something coming out of Mr. Trump, President Trump, that would enable me to say that he's he's hinting at we've got an, a big discovery that nobody knows about. And I followed a lot of his press quotes. You know, he made a lot of visits uh, to the petroleum centers. Uh, uh, he went to the LNG complex at St. in Lake Charles at Sempra. He went to the pipeline juncture at Cleveland and talked to the pipeliners. Um, and we had two very interesting comments by him. On Air Force One in 2017, July, he told the press group that in an informal press conference that we, have, we are sitting on more oil than anybody. So I assume he's talking Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran. And he says, and we didn't know about it until five years ago. Well, five years ago is the summer of 2012. And summer of 2012, our sources at Enterprise and with the guys who were doing the earthwork on the storage uh, and, and pipelines up in Buda, they told us this oil is going to be exported from the Enterprise facility down at, on the ship channel. So if they knew about the oil being exported, uh, then it was the that's the same time the cores were presented to Department of Defense and Department of Energy in Washington. So we think Trump is talking about Buddha, not West Texas, when he's talking about us having more oil than anybody. Incidentally, we had he made paid a visit to West Texas just recently to go out and look at a uh, rig, and we had uh, people who live in Buffalo, Texas, who who were doing. Um, mud consulting on that rig. They talked to the president and he asked them where they, they lived and they said, we live in Buffalo, Texas and we commute out here to West Texas. He says, oh, I go there all the time, made several trips there. He says, you're gonna have plenty of work at home. I think that President Trump isn't, isn't spelling it out for you in, in bold letters, but what he's basically telling us is there's something really big in Buffalo, Texas, which is, where the Buddha field terminates to the north. And on a terms of scale, it's world-class. And the storage, more than anything, the NGL argument's powerful. And the double, the two, 248s going to the refining complex is powerful. But to me, the argument is iced when I found out that they're going to put 1,250, 250,000 barrel tanks uh, into Freeport. That's wild. That's wild. Well, Greg, if uh, if people wanted to get in touch with you, talk more about the play, you had you had uh, said earlier in the podcast that folks that uh, had some evidence disproving this or proving this, you'd love to visit with. How do folks get in touch with you? Well, I think that I think that when we look at this. This argument, the failure of EOG to start drilling and the failure that to announce the discovery and the fact that there's no reporting um, is a se severe deficiency in our case. So we're very anxious to talk to people who can give us either confirming evidence saying, yes, we've talked to people and what you're hearing about these 48s is true because we can't locate them except in a few spots. And this coming uh, build out of storage at Freeport, events like that, we'd be very grateful to anybody on the podcast who knows about this stuff who can give us confirmation. Or for that matter, since a lot of money's involved here, if they have disconfirming evidence or clear indications that there's uh, big volumes coming from mid-continent or big volumes coming from West Texas to explain these circuitous pipelines. I mean, it, is, it doesn't make any sense to route pipelines from West Texas. Through, through East Texas, that's 200 miles out of the way. So if they've got some explanation for why we've got um, too much capacity, too much, too much above ground storage, all located further away from West Texas, rather than close to it, and also uh, mid-continent. We'd love to hear about it. We wanna hear the skeptical argument. To date, the skeptical argument has just been Oh, that's all for West Texas, and that's a failed play. Um, right now, um, if you add up the pipelines that have no operator, identified operator that are on railroad commission maps, the NGL lines, and then the um, uh, 
we are at about 21 pipelines, and they're continuing to come through. Uh, there is uh, um, uh, there's the the Arbuckle two four pipelines NGL pipelines that are going into Houston County. Um, there's going to be a pipeline from Midland coming all the way across the field uh, into uh, an ETS facility uh, in Port Natchez for export. There's a 30-inch line coming south, which is uh, called Gray Oak, pardon me, Red Oak, uh, that's being laid by um, Plains Resources, Exxon's laying, Wink the Webster. They're all coming through to do additional gathering of crude oil. Um, in Buddha. So if you've got Winkta Webster, uh, Red, Red Oak, and then you've got Midland, um, ETS's line from Midland into Port Acres for the VLCC facility they're building, that's another 200, 2 million barrels plus of capacity. And so the oil number gets even bigger if it's, if it's, Instead of being 10, 12 million on the low estimate, it's 14, 16. Instead of being 16, it's 18. So then it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And eventually, this is going to become manifest. But we could accelerate that process if we hear from people who do scouting, people who talk to people in infrastructure who have information that confirms or reinforces this. And we're also interested in talking to landmen. And of course, finally, money. I mean, we need money if we're going to exploit this opportunity. But can you imagine uh, what a royalty interest would be worth in a 80-acre tract that has a dual lateral on it that can make a million barrels of oil and five BCF of gas in the first month, six months it's on? Well, get, Greg, give out your uh, email address and, uh, and your phone number that you want people to contact you at. It's Greg J Kane G R E G J K A N E at gmail.com. And the phone number is 936-438-2992. And like I said, we're interested in anybody who um, found the argument to have merit and anybody who can help bolster it. And we also want to hear from anybody who can say, you know, there's a flaw in the reasoning, but you know, we've just got too much stuff too far up the Gulf Coast to explain anything except a supergiant field in Madison County, Texas. Well, Greg, really appreciate your time, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you again. Take care. Thank you, gentlemen.